0: Earlier, I watched this uh, this video. It was uh, off of a link on Facebook. It was uh, one of these what you call like clickbait. Are you guys familiar with the term clickbait? It's like these, and I think actually Facebook has largely done away with them. Um, they, they found a way to kind of filter them out, but, but you know, they, it would be this, uh, a link that would be on, a, on, a fa- on your Facebook feed and your Facebook page that people would share or like a Facebook page would share, um, and it would always have these kind of like enticing, um, like, like, what do you call it? like headings for the page. So it would be like, you won't believe what this man said after, and it wouldn't tell you the rest. And in order to find out, you'd have to click on the link and go to the website. And then you could go read the story or watch a video about it. And they call it clickbait because it's like, it's like enticing. It's teasing you with just this, this title that makes you want to go click and go see what's going on or go watch this video or go read the story. And I got suckered into it. Right? Uh, like 99% of the time it doesn't work, but it was just that just you won't believe what this man said, dot, dot, dot. And I was like, oh, I have to know. So I clicked on it, I went to it, and of course it has like these like six, seven paragraphs that kind of give you the context of the story, but I just skipped that. I just go right to the video. And in the video, it shows there's this, you know, an older gentleman, actually this younger gentleman, and you can tell there's this kind of attention going on, and then the older gentleman looks to the younger gentleman and he says, I don't blame you. I blame the devil. And I forgive you for the part that you played. I don't blame you. I forgive you. And then the younger man just starts bawling. He starts crying and crying and crying. And then he goes and he hugs the older man. And then they both start crying. And then the video end ends. And, 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 the, and the heading of the video says, so powerful. And I'm like, what just happened? <laughs> I have no idea what just happened. So then I'm like, maybe I'll go read the six paragraphs. right? And so then I go read the six parra- paragraphs. And I find out that this whole story is actually taking place in a courtroom. And that the older gentleman uh, had a son and the other younger gentleman murdered his son. And now this older gentleman is saying in the courtroom, I don't blame you for murdering my son. I blame the devil and I forgive you for whatever part you played in that. And then I was like, whoa, that is powerful. That is a beautiful story. It's this light bulb moment that all of a sudden the context of the story right, makes this little scene so much more beautiful, so much more ca- captivating. I saw the context of the relationship. And it's the context of that relationship which made those man's words so powerful and so interesting. You see, if we miss the story, we miss the importance of the father's words and the importance of the father's action. Right? if we miss the story, if we miss the context, we miss the importance. I think there's a tragedy... That uh, today I feel like so many miss the story of God's relationship with people. And so often we miss the context. We miss the context of the relationship between God and mankind. And I'll hear people uh, say things like, God loves you. God forgives you. God died for you. But I can't help but to think how the significance of that is often lost if people don't understand the context of that. And it's it's amazing that actually so many non-Christians today, uh, they they don't understand any of the, the context of Christianity. And so when they hear you say something like, Jesus died for you. And if you don't know anything about the gospel, that's a very confusing expression. Very, very confusing. What do you mean he died for me? They don't understand sin. And they don't understand what what, what the atonement of Jesus meant. We will never understand the relationship between God and mankind until we understand the distinction between God and mankind. And that's one of the the, the vital things that sometimes too we we fail to either communicate or many people fail to understand. What is that distinction between God and man? So we're not going to understand the context, we're not going to understand the relationship until we understand those distinctions. And then we will never understand the depths of God's love, God's forgiveness, God's actions until we understand who God is and who mankind is. All right? we, we won't understand the bigness of God's love until we understand the smallness of us. The tragedy is, is that so many today, I think, miss the point of Jesus because of that. They miss the point of the gospel. They miss the depths of God's love because we don't understand this relationship of God and man. We don't understand the distinction between God and man. We don't know the story, the context. Sometimes we just want to share that little. 15-second video without the six paragraphs that go with that that make that video so meaningful. So people hear or say, Jesus died for you, or he loves you, and those words, they don't mean much without that story. The significance of God's love is lost when we don't understand the relationship between God and people. And I think many people have a perception of Christianity that it's kind of a self-help guide. I've heard many people, uh, non-Christians, talk about it as just, it's an escape from hell for people who believe in hell. Right, it's just an escape from hell, rather than understanding it as this gigantic, big, great, immense love story. And So it's vital we understand the context of our relationship with God. Well, today we read a psalm that focuses on just that. It draws on this distinction between God and mankind. And it's just from, from the, the psalmist, from the author of the psalm's perspective of just recognizing who he is and who God is. We're going to be reading Psalm 8 this morning. I encourage you, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If you get your phones, whatever, turn there. Uh, if not, it's all right. It's going to be on the screen uh, right, right above me. But as we read through the psalm this morning, I want you to keep in mind, it's its, its main point, at least one of the main points I want us to be uh, attentive to this morning, is it's trying to reflect on the greatness of God and understand mankind's place in his universe. The psalm is about God. It's not about us. It's about God. But it's understanding this greatness of God and where we fit in this universe of God's. It draws us to this distinction between God and men. But let's go ahead and and jump in the word together this morning. It's going to be in Psalm 8. We're going to start right up on verse 1. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of baby and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. As I said earlier, and the thing I want us to reflect on, and one of the main themes here is to reflect on this greatness of God and man's place in God's universe. I want to just read again verses three and four because I think these are some of the key verses within the psalm. It says, "When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him?" And what is it saying here? Now, when you think when you think about all that you have done, when you think about all how great you are, O oh God. Who are we that you care for us? Who are we that you care for us? As little humans. I think of the greatness of God and the bigness of what he has done. The creator and the author of the universe. The writer of every single one of our destinies. And yet there's this powerful, distinct, unique love for each and every one of us. Who are we, God, that you care for us? Now, there's something that I think uh, English translations might miss, or at least you know, just at least it's a point for us to draw on. And that's something that happens that we might be able to figure out in the Hebrew that helps us understand maybe somewhere where this is coming from. In verse four, it says "man," right? That that the Hebrew word there is enosh. right? Um, there's many many words uh, that are translated out of Hebrew uh, and translated as uh, into that word "man" uh, in English into "man." Right, so you have you have probably one of the most common words is this word called ish, the word ish in Hebrew, right? And this is what often is just kind of distinguishing between man and a woman, right? Ish would be just you know just a simple way of saying oh like a man entered the room, like an ish entered the room, right? So you hear that, and that would be kind of contrasted with or distinct from isha, which is woman, right? And that is very gender specific. And then there's the word uh, adam. Right, Adam, which is actually literally where we get the name Adam from. Um, and it's largely referring to mankind. And, and most of the time with the inscription when we see that within the Old Testament, it isn't gender specific. Right? It isn't trying to distinguish between male or female in any kind of way. It's this larger picture of all humankind. Right? And then you get, you get the word as a car, which is really, uh, I would say probably most often is drawing out like some biological distinction between male and female. as a car. And, and that's contrasted with uh, ankiva. Which is female, which is very, just kind of drawing on these, these differences between male and female uh, very much biologically. Right, so kind of a you know, context of where you see this is that you know, in Genesis, you see both all three of these words used within, within uh, a few verses, actually. Right? So it, when it says that uh, God made man in his own image, or mankind in his own image, depending on the translation, and then it says, in his image he created them, and then it says male and female he created them. Right? So that first word there is uh, Adam. He created uh, uh, mankind in his image. And then it goes on to make this distinction between zakar and ankiva. Between male and female. Kind of distinguishing this. is very... Trying to draw on this very biological differences. But both are created in his images. And then, and then the next chapter, just a few verses later, uh, when it says, When a man shall leave his wife... Sorry, a man should leave his, 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 uh, his father and his mother to be with his wife. Uh, that's where you see these words, ish and isha, which is more kind of sociologically significant. But then there's this, this other word, which is not used very often, and it's enosh. And that's what we see here in Psalm 8. Um, it's really not gender specific, though we, we see here there's a pronoun that'll say man, and then there's a reference to him, but that's just the nature of the language that kind of defaults, uh, mankind is often defaulted as, just, as, as masculine. Uh, but it's not really a gender-specific word. Right? Um, it's not very common in the Old Testament. It's used about uh, 41 times throughout the Old Testament, which is not a lot. It's mostly in Job and Psalms. Right? Notice those are both poetic books in nature. But when you, when you study this word enosh, and you're kind of trying to figure out how is it used and you know, why is it that the authors use it this way. Uh, one of the things you're going to find is that it's often used when it's trying to draw a distinction. Where it's comparing or contrasting, specifically, humans to God. When you're trying to just draw on this distinction between your God and we're just little humans down here. Right? The, the word enosh is most often used when distinguishing, when a man or person is distinguishing himself from God. Recognizing the greatness of God. Right, or Job, and when God is actually just thinking, you know, like, you're just a man. Do you remember that part in Job when he's like, were you there when I created the heavens? You're just a man. Right, but it's this kind of just trying to draw this distinction between God and humankind. Right, but some of the, the verses we see throughout scriptures when it says, can, can man be righteous before God? Or who is man that you, your heart is out for him? Or I will answer you for God is greater than man. Those are all times in which this word, enosh, is used. I, one of the, the ways I would, I would think about this word and how it's, you know, used is often the way we might think of like uh, Greco-Roman mythology, in which you all sometimes will be identified, someone will be identified as a mortal. Maybe one of the gods in the, in the mythology would be like, you are a mortal. How do you, you know, how, do you, how can you dare speak before me that way, right? But the word mortal, I mean, technically it's saying someone who can die, But within that mythology, it's often the word mortals what's drawing this distinction between the immortals, the gods, and the the people, the humans. But part of it is just so much about trying to just draw this distinction between something immense and something small. And Enosh, in part, is playing that role. I believe that the poets of the Bible, specifically what we see within Psalms and within Job, use this word to describe the smallness of man and contrast that before an immense and perfect god what's the point what's the point then why does the psalm uh, why 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 does the psalm place this emphasis on this greatness of god and the smallness of god yet god's affection for mankind i think those are the three things that are really kind of happening a lot here god you are big who are we we're small and yet You show us so much affection, right? It does this to show us our relationship to God isn't an equal relationship. Our relationship to God isn't an equal relationship. God doesn't get anything from people that he couldn't get from himself or for himself. Man has nothing worthwhile, really practically worthwhile to God. There's nothing we have to offer to God that God needs from us. It isn't a fair relationship. It isn't an equal relationship. Mankind hasn't deserved or won God's love. I think of you know, so many times that God gives us these kind of clues in life. To help us understand big theological ideas. And as I was meditating on this thought. I can't but help to think about the birth of my daughter. And the first time that I hold her, held her. And I looked in her big blue beautiful eyes. And I completely fell in love with this little soul. But if I'm honest, she didn't do anything (laughs) to make me love her. She didn't win my love by anything that she did, by anything that she, she didn't perform in some kind of way or kind of demonstrated herself in some kind of a way that made me go, oh, you deserve my love. You're worthy of my love. You've done something uh, to, to make me love you. Right? She, she could have done quite the opposite. She could have vomited on me, pooped on me, peed on me, cried for seven days straight and never let me sleep. And I would still die for her. I can't help but to think this is, this is the kind of an affection that God has for us and the kind of a relationship that God has for us. And this is an imagery God gives us so that we might grasp the bigness of God and the smallness of us. One of the weirdest things I ever learned in college, I was this in, in a marriage and family psych class, and uh, it was some psychologists uh, came up with this whole idea. They called it the dating market. The dating market, and they had this theory that unconsciously people pick a spouse or a, you know someone to date that had quote equal value to themselves, equal value to themselves, and that what makes up someone's value uh, will change from person to person or from culture to culture. Uh, but this this psychologist kind of wrote, wrote up like you know a bunch of you know twenty different things that kind of make up someone's value. How much money you make? How attractive you are? How stable of a person you are? How good of a parent you're going to be? Right? What's your kind of social status? On and on and on and on. There's just these lists of criteria, and he actually went and made these little scorecards. You so go through and be like, "Well, I'm an eight here, and I'm a six here, and I'm a four here, and a three here, and I'm going to tally it up and average it up, and I'm a seven and a half, right? Or whatever." And that you had these scorecards, and that I. I I, you know, unconsciously, what people are doing is that when they're looking at potential spouses or people to date, they're tallying up those numbers and they're trying to contrast themselves. Of oh, I'm a seven and a half, so you know, I'd be good to date somebody that's a seven or an eight, somewhere in that range, right? But the psychologist had this theory that if an eight dated a six, that six would always feel inferior to the eight. They would always feel like, well, you know, I'm just not quite good enough. So they're going to sacrifice more. They're going to try a little harder. They're going to do a little more. And the eight is going to feel the opposite. They have to try, they could try a little less. Right? Because, you know, I could do better. Right? And so, you know, it makes me think, my, my grandfather said that the people who needed therapy the most were psychologists. And I didn't under, ever believe that or I didn't understand what he meant until I took that class. right. <laughs> um, Now, one thing to do is not today. The one thing I learned from church today is go home and number yourself and compare yourself to your spouse, and that would be a disaster. Um, But I can't help when I read this psalm and think God is a ten and we are a one. God is a ten and we are a one. Mankind has absolutely nothing to offer God that God needs or can't do himself. There's nothing. There's nothing God needs from you. There's nothing that God needs from you. Um, This is an unequal relationship. However, unlike with people, at least this psychologist's theory, unlike with people, the, the man's history from God hasn't been marked by mankind chasing after God and sacrificing more for God and trying to do more to make sure that God doesn't leave him. That, that the way that the psychologist describes what happens between a six and an eight. Right? We don't see that in our story. Instead, we see something quite the opposite. The story has been mankind running from God and God chasing after mankind. And so the psalm writes, What is man that you are mindful of him? Who are we who've run from him? who sinned against you, who just so often disobey, who will worship you with one word and then the next disgrace you. Who are we, God, that you love us? Who are we that you care for us, O God? Now, it'd be very easy to read the psalm and, and I think miss the point. I think it would be easy to presume that part of the author's goal is to make us feel bad about ourselves. Oh, we're just petty little ones. And you should feel ashamed or broken. Oh, you aren't good enough. Oh, you don't deserve God's love. Oh, you're so bad. Right? I mean, that's something that happens. I think a lot of us humans do sometimes. Sometimes, An unhealthy relationship. That's something that does happen when someone feels um, unequal. Right? There's this kind of a shame or guilt about I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. God never wants us to feel that kind of a way in which there's this kind of shame or guilt or just kind of this, this depression that's brought on us because we're not good enough for God. The energy, the theme, and the purpose is clearly of this psalm is clearly not guilt. The goal of the psalm is not to depress you. It's not to depress you. It's to remind you So that we become mindful of this context of our relationship. So that you might fall deeper in love. And you might fall deeper into thanksgiving. Into thankfulness to our God. God is great. And we people are so small. This is an unequal relationship. And you might not be worth a whole bunch. You might not uh, have a whole lot to offer. But my goodness, does God treasure you? God loves you and values you. The the point of the psalm is not to depress you or to make you feel um, guilty. But to celebrate the bigness of God's love. Um, He does not love you because of who you are. But because of how great his love is. God loves you not because of who you are, but because of how great his love is. That's what the psalm is celebrating. Our relationship to God is not a story about us trying to be enough for God, it's not the gospel. Right? The story of the gospel is that God loves you not because you've offered so much to Him, not because you've done so much for Him, not because you, you are enough. God's love for you isn't about you. It's always one of the most important things about the gospel we've got to understand. The gospel is not about you. It's never been about you being enough, about you doing enough. It's not you earning it. It's not an investment from God. That God's like, oh, I'm going to love you and I'm going to make you holy. And then all of a sudden, now you're going to be worth it. It's not an investment. The story of God, the gospel is that God loves you not because of you. Or anything you are or anything you will be. God loves you because of his love. It's because of how big he is. It isn't because of anything you're going to offer him? And part of what that means... There's absolutely nothing you can do to change it. If God loves you, not because of you or anything you've done or anything you will do, but he loves you because of him and his love is unchanging, that means that his love will never change. And there's nothing you can do to ruin that. You can't fail enough. You can't run far enough. His love for you is unending. You cannot add or remove to God's perfect love. Whether you're a sinner or a saint tomorrow has absolutely no bearing on God's love for you. When you grasp the greatness of God and you understand the smallness of you, you understand just how great that love is. You understand the love, the forgiveness, the mercy Of God. And then that expression, God loves you, it means so much more. And the, the, the reality, the fact that Jesus died for you, it means so much more when you understand the greatness of God and the smallness of us. It will naturally lead you to be thankful. It will naturally leave you to fall deeper in love. When we hear the gospel, talk about the gospel, think about the gospel, without understanding this context, the story of who God is and who we are before God, without understanding that this is an unequal relationship, it's not like we're doing a bunch of things to earn God's love. When we understand the gospel and all of that, um, or when we fail to understand the context of the gospel, it becomes uh, very easy for us to miss the point. Many might believe that Jesus died for them because of them. Kind of like watching a video without having that backstory, right? You're going to miss the power of the cross. You're going to miss the power of God's word that he loves you. And you're going to miss the power of the promise that God has for you, that he wants an eternity with you. It's very bizarre that such a big, perfect God wants such small people like us. Don't miss the context. Don't miss that story. A couple weeks back, uh, I, I talked about um, how there are types of prayers where there's some people practice prayers in which it's very kind of I don't want to say formulaic, but it kind of is formulaic. It's structured. Right? And one of the things that I had said was that um, that isn't necessary. That our prayers don't need to be pretty. And I hold to that. But at the same time, I don't also want to uh, undervalue the significance of having a structured prayer. Right? Um, uh, if you want to pray uh, but don't know how, I think there's something beautiful about having this kind of structure. Some guidelines of knowing how to pray. And one of them that I think has uh, been popularized is this. It's kind of it's broken down in an acronym. The acronym is ACTS, A-C-T-S. And then I think, really, I would say, biblical prayers can be boiled down to these four points, right? And as I said, it, it, this, you don't have to be married to this. I'm not saying that this is the right way to pray. So I think this is a helpful way to pray. At least in times, at times, it's a helpful way to pray. Now, there are a lot of kind of fancy theological words in it, but the, the A stands for adoration, to adore. That your prayer ought to begin, or should begin, or it might begin, it would be well for it to begin, uh, with you to celebrate, adore, and express this bigness of God. And In the psalm, that's what happens at the beginning of the psalm, like you are huge, God. You are huge. The universe declares the glory of God, right? It's the bigness of God. That's adoration. How powerful, how great, how majestic, how holy you are. And then it goes to C, confession. Right? And this is when there's this place in our prayer in which we go to God about our sin, our failures, our inadequacies. When we reflect on who we are, on the smallness, on the brokenness of who we are, our shortcomings, our inabilities, our weaknesses. Then it transitions to Thanksgiving, T, Thanksgiving, when we express this gratitude. It's appreciation. We thank God for his persistent love. We thank God for the gospel. We thank God for the blessings he gives us. We thank God for our families, for our children. For our trials, for our health, for whatever. When we thank God for the gifts he gives. And then S is supplication. When we ask for, for supplements, for God to bring us things. For those needs, or those wants that we have. Jesus tells us to pray for those things. So biblical prayer incorporates that. We pray for those things. Now, a lot of times, I think one of the advantages of this model of prayer is that a lot of times we just focus on supplication. A lot of people believe that prayer is. It's just about the supplication when we go to God to ask things from God. And then every now and then we confess when there's a big sin going on in our life and we're like, well, probably should say something about it. Let me get back to asking things for God. And then every now and then I'm going to throw a thank you for the things like 800 things you answered last year. Right, but there's just kind of an imbalance in the way we come before God. But part of the thing I want us to understand this morning is that that acronym ACTS—Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication—there's a progression to it, and it's a purposeful progression. Can you see why? It's about developing our perspective with God. You start with adoration because adoration is about knowing who God is. It forces you, it causes you to dwell on the bigness of God. How great are you, God? How big are you, God? You just think about God and the bigness of God before you say another word to Him. Right? I, I just can't help but to think about how different our prayers are when we're understanding who God is and how big God is. It changes the way we speak to Him. And then it transitions to confession. You get this bigness, and you understand the bigness of God, and then it transitions to confession. Why? Confessions is about knowing who you really are. It helps you put you in perspective. See, adoration puts God in perspective. Confession puts you in perspective. It helps you understand the context of this relationship, that you too, you've run from God. Right? You fail God. That happens. It reminds us of this failure and inadequacies. And then we transition to thanksgiving. Because in that, when you understand the bigness of God, and you understand the smallness of man, that draws you to be people who are thankful. Thankful for his love. Thank you for, for his mercies, for his grace, even for the gifts we don't deserve. It draws us to be thankful. Then, and then, finally then, then we can be Our perspective of God and ourselves are in the right place and then we are in the right place to ask for what we want. Not because we know we deserve it. Not because, God, I went to church every week last month. I tithe. I did this. I did this. I deserve this. It puts you and God in perspective. And out of a spirit of thankfulness, you can lay your requests before God. Interesting enough, this psalm is the thanksgiving psalm. It's a thanksgiving psalm, and yet um, the words thank you are never found in psalm. the psalm. The author isn't saying, thank you, God, for loving me. Why? Thankfulness isn't what you say, but it's an attitude you have. And that's something we see in the psalm. Sometimes we think thankfulness is just saying the right thing to God. Oh, and by the way, thank you, God. (laughs) But thankfulness is an attitude. It's going to shape the way you think about God. It's going to shape the way you ask for things for God. It's going to shape the way you apologize to God and you confess to God. Um, When you reflect and pray about the greatness of who God is and the smallness of who we are, when you have this kind of progressive flow like that Acts model, I think there's this natural flow that leads us to thank Him. It leads us to have a a spirit of gratitude and love towards Him. And it leads us to a place of joy and peace. What do you have to be worried about when you understand that a huge God loves you regardless of who you are, regardless of what you've done, regardless of what you will do? What do you possibly have to be worried about? What possibly do you have to not be joyful about? Do you trudgingly do some task before you you don't want to do? How could you possibly not have joy when you think about the bigness of God and the smallness of you? You're going to have so much thanksgiving, so much joy, so much peace. Right, It helps us, Right, this kind of a prayer, this what we see in the psalm, this, this structure of just dwelling on the greatness of God and the smallness of us, this distinction between us, it helps us understand the context of our relationship with God. Right, this intentional dwelling on the bigness and the smallness, it helps us understand the context of our relationship with God. Don't neglect to pray to God like this to spend adequate time, extensive time, praying and dwelling on the bigness of who God is and the smallness of who you are. Because it helps you understand the full gospel. It helps you unlock that joy and that peace that is treasured by so many mature in faith. Read this psalm. Pray Acts. Be thankful. Fall deeper in love. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. God, in words, I cannot right now express just how big you are. God, I can hardly fathom how you love so many throughout this world. There are six, seven billion people in this world that your heart goes out to. And God, you are, you are stirring your movement, your kingdom here in this world. You are organizing hundreds of millions of us to work out the gospel, to work out and grow your kingdom. God, you are doing so much. You are huge. Not to mention the vastness of this universe, God, that you govern. And you're bigger than all of it. God, we are so small many of us have sinned, real sin, deep sin that we've committed this week maybe even this day there's brokenness, there's failure that's just riddled in our life there's a lot of inadequacy in each of us God and God that's why this morning we come just so thankful for the cross for your affection for us for your yearning and wanting and desire for us to be with you for all eternity. God, help us to have that spirit of thankfulness. Some of us might lack it this morning. Some of us might have too many other things going on in our day and that it's hard for us to grasp just how big you are and how great your love is for us. Father, I ask this morning, you encourage that spirit of thankfulness, that thinks thankfulness in our heart, that we might leave here just thankful, God, for your love, your grace, your mercy, for your gifts. Change our hearts, Lord, change our attitudes. And God, we just pray for this community. We pray for health and well-being for this community, God. We pray for growth in this community, God. We pray. I pray specifically. I'm thinking about Pastor Cliff God as he prepares to come back here, Lord. You prepare his heart. Father, just grow us in love and thankfulness this morning. We pray these things in your wonderful son's name. Amen.